Before we get started here, this is a very important study, Daniel chapter 7. Uh, we're going to see a lot of uh, similarities with Daniel chapter 2, the great image of Daniel chapter 2, and there's a reason for that. God gave us the big picture, so to speak, in Daniel chapter 2, and then we're going to start fitting in some of the pieces of the puzzle. Uh, but uh, before we get in into uh, this lesson, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you again so much for this opportunity for us to come together and study from your word, and particularly the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. We humbly ask for the Holy Spirit to be given to us so that we may discern the truth and that our hearts may be softened to the truth, that we may accept it and then share it with those around. We thank you so much for Jesus, his life and death on our behalf. And we thank you for hearing this prayer as we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we begin this study of Bible prophecy, I want you to remember, please remember, that we are in search of what the Bible has to say. The, the truth that we find in the Bible so that we can understand what's uh, coming upon the world prior to the second coming of, of Jesus. Um, sometimes, maybe many times, it depends on our experience, the truth can surprise us. Even so, it's still the truth, right? Jesus wants us to know the truth so that we will not be deceived by the devil and lose our eternal salvation. We're going to get into Daniel chapter 7. The study is entitled, uh, The Little Horn. And as we get into Daniel 7 here, we'll get to why exactly this study is entitled The Little Horn. But we're going to begin with Daniel 7, and we'll start with verse 1. Question 1 is, what did Daniel see in vision? Well, let's take a look and read, oh, the first seven verses here. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second, like a bear, like to a bear. And it raised up itself on one side. And it had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard. Another what? Another beast, right? Like a leopard, he says, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. 
It had ten horns. Hang on just a second here. <clears throat> so what was it that Daniel, you know, to answer the question, what was it that Daniel saw in his vision? If you were to, I don't you know, necessarily say we need to, <laughs> we'll get to the specifics, let me say, as we go along. But what primarily did he see? He saw four great beasts, didn't he? And what were they coming out of? That's important to know too. They were rising upright out of the sea. And all were different from each other as we read through and and saw the description of each one. Now, symbolism is used throughout prophecy, right? Especially apocalyptic prophecy. Uh, and we want to let the Bible define what these symbols mean. So question two is asked, what do the following symbols mean? When it says wind, does the Bible, remember one of our principles, Bible study principles, to let the Bible take it as it reads and let the Bible define itself, right? So what does the word wind represent? What is that? It's a symbol. You know, it's... Is it literal wind, or does it mean something else? Well, we know when we study prophecy, prophecy, as we covered before, is very apocalyptic prophecies are very descriptive. They basically, a lot of times, take things that aren't in nature. doesn't mean that they don't take things that are in nature as well, just like Daniel here seeing these beasts. Some of them were taken out of nature. In fact, when God inspires prophets, and when God has inspired any of His people, and let's say the authors of the Bible... It's not the books that they've written for us to read from weren't dictated to them. They had to put the things that they were shown into their own language. And so if you can imagine, here's Daniel. He's, he's taken into this dream and he's seeing these things. And so now he's got to describe them, you know, describe exactly what he saw in his own words. Okay? So wind, in some parts of the Bible, wind is wind. But in prophecy, wind means something else and that's what we want to know Jeremiah 25 and verse 32 it says thus saith the Lord of hosts behold evil shall go forth from nation to nation and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth so that's interesting isn't it talking about wind a great, it says a great whirlwind now if you go to Revelation 7 and verse 1 It says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now that's interesting, um, because we we know what wind is. I mean, we experience wind, but what is the Bible saying here? If you combine what Jeremiah is saying, he says, An evil shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth. Jeremiah is not talking about an actual whirlwind because the context is an evil shall go forth from nation to nation, right? And then when you look in Revelation there, you know, John here, he's talking about these angels standing on the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth. Well, are they the actual winds? Are there actually four winds on the earth? So we know this is a description when you combine them. What what does the, the, the symbol for wind represent? In symbolic language, it represents, yeah, strife. A strife, a political commotion, uh, uh, even a war. And this is what Jeremiah was speaking about when 
he said, the evil shall go forth from nation to nation. A great whirlwind shall be raised up. You know, a conflagration. See? So, the wind, and, and there are other examples we could get into, but I don't want to, you know, spend a lot of time. I did hand out uh, that paper there that kind of goes through some of uh, the symbolic um, prophetic symbols. And uh, those joining us on Pal Talk can go to the church site and on the Bible study page, and it's it's posted there as well. So you can you can open that up and, and take a look at that as well. Now there's another one, another one we want to define, another and a word, and that's waters. Remember, Daniel saw these beasts come up out of the sea, speaking about waters. And does the Bible have a symbolic definition for the word waters? Well, if you look at Revelation 17 and verse 15, Revelation 17, verse 15, and it says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest where the horse sitteth are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So he's given a really kind of a clear you know, definition of what this term waters can represent. Literally, water is water. Prophetically, it represents what then? Peoples and nations and multitudes, doesn't it? According to what the Bible says. And and just as another example, I mean the the beasts, when we talk about beasts here, Daniel's describing beasts, the beasts in Daniel's vision represent what? Well, if we go on to verse 17 we find an answer. Daniel 7 and verse 17. It says, These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. Okay? So, it's very interesting. We've, we've got wind, we've got water, and we've got beasts here. So, the, these beasts represent four kings or kingdoms that arise consecutively, for they're enumerated from the first to the last. And we see the parallel. If you look at our whiteboard here, last time we were together, what I had was Daniel chapter 2, and I had ten toes written there. But you get into Daniel 7, and it's, it's not ten toes, but it's ten horns. But they symbolize the same thing. So let's, we take what we learned from Daniel chapter 2, because in Daniel chapter 7, God is expounding upon what he showed uh, the king in Daniel chapter 2. And it's for us. So, here again, what do we have? We had four kingdoms in Daniel 2, but here we see four beasts. Okay? So as we learn in the study of Daniel chapter 2, there were to be but four universal kingdoms uh, from the time of Daniel to the end of the world. And, And Daniel... What kingdom was Daniel living under? Right, the first kingdom, Babylon. You're right. And so he was living under that kingdom denoted by the head of gold. Right? And so the first beast of this vision has to denote the same kingdom as the great head of gold of that image in in Daniel chapter 2, which was, as Deb said, Babylon. Question 3, how was the first beast described? Let's go back to verse 4. 
says the first beast, he says the first was like a lion. It had eagle's wings. I beheld to the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand upon the feet as a man, and man's heart was given to it. So in describing this beast, he says it was what? It was like a what? It was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. Exactly. So that's how he described that beast. And I, and actually, it's an appropriate symbol for Babylon. Um, if you get into what? Yeah, it's a winged lion. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Okay. Well, I mean, there's it's but but yeah. If you get into saying. exactly Babylon is weaved through. Well, a lot of the media, and so are all the. So are all the the pagan uh, uh, attributes that you find in those kingdoms of Medo Persia and and, and Greece and Rome. They're all weaved together, and in fact, when we get into Revelation chapter thirteen, you'll see that the beast spoken of there is amalgamation of all these beasts. See which shows that there are attributes from each one that are part of the last beast. Well, my point is, it just, you know... Just dawned on you that, wow. Well, yeah, and how they introduce it to our kids when they're little. Yep, absolutely. In little, subtle ways. If you allow it, that's for sure. But if you look in a lot of the archaeological finds um, concerning uh, Babylon, you'll find that the winged lion is... is, uh, are found very often in their art. They have a winged lion. Or they have a combination of a lion and an eagle. You know, that's a, that was a common motif, so to speak, of, of Babylon. More often a lion with eagle's wings, sometimes with claws. There's some I've seen pictures of, or a beak. Um, or there is a composite. Uh, some pictures I've seen was uh, uh, with an eagle with a lion's head. And it depicted Babylon. But here... The winged lion is one of the forms of the beast um, that you find in these these antiquity, you know, at Babylon. In fact, the winged lion is one of the forms of the beast that's pictured in combat with Marduk, who was a patron god of the city of Babylon. In fact, one of the gates of the city of Babylon was named after Marduk. And so other prophets even referred to um, King Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar by similar figures as a winged lion. You look at Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Habakkuk. You know, chapter 1 will tell you as well. The lion as the king of beasts and the eagle as the king of birds, they fittingly represented the empire of Babylon at the height of its glory. Um, A lion is noted for what, usually? It's noted for its strength, isn't it? Isn't that true? You know, all the other cats in the jungle fear the lion. And the eagle is famous for the power and the range of its flight. So Nebuchadnezzar's power was felt not only in Babylon, but from the Mediterranean, I mean all the way to the Persian Gulf, from Asia Minor up to to Egypt. And so it's very fitting to represent the spread of Babylon's power Um, by using this lion with eagle's wings. 
But then what did, did Daniel say? There came a time when the wings were plucked. Isn't that right? It said there. Babylon no longer rushed upon its prey like an eagle. The boldness and the spirit of the lion were gone. A man's heart, weak, timorous, faint, took the place of a lion's strength. And such was the case the case with the nation during the closing years of its history when it had become, it's very interesting, it had become enfeebled and effeminate through wealth and luxury, as you can read about in Daniel chapter 5. Um, Rome, the fall of Rome, pagan Rome, was kind of the same way. Became enfeebled and effeminate, real effeminate. They just didn't want to go fight anybody anymore. Their society was effeminate. Homosexuality was uh, prevalent. Um, and there was a dumbing down of masculinity that they, they didn't revere their military much anymore. They basically left their military out by itself. Which then, as we studied in Daniel chapter 2, those ten toes, those tribes, saw the weakness. And then you had the division of Rome. So it's very interesting how it plays out through history. Question four, what was the appearance of the second beast? Daniel 7, verse 5. Are you in Daniel? Do you have it? You want to read verse 5? And behold, another beast, the second like to a bear. And it raised it up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. So what, what... did this beast look like? What's the answer to that? It was a bear, and what was was in the bear's mouth? Three ribs. Isn't that rather strange? <laughs> well, all these beasts tend to be kind of strange, don't they? But it had it was a bear with three ribs in its mouth. It was raised up on one side. So as in the image of Daniel 2, a marked deterioration is noticed as we descend from one kingdom to another. The silver of the breast and arms is inferior to what? The gold, golden head, right? And so, the bear is inferior to the lion. Medo-Persia did fall short of Babylon, uh, the kingdom of Babylon, in its wealth, its magnificence, its brilliance. Of course, it didn't use gold you know, for everything. Uh, we looked at that last week. How virtually everything in Babylon was 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 had gold at the heart of it. I mean, even the priestly robes that they wore had strands of gold in it. You know, but Medo Persia wasn't like that. It was a step down, and it wasn't as brilliant. Even though they assumed some of the culture of Babylon, which again gets into the beast in Revelation 13 we'll talk about later, that amalgamation part. Um, the verse says that the bear raised itself up on one side. Well, we see that the kingdom was composed of two nationalities, wasn't it? The Medes and the Persians. The same fact is represented by, when you get into Daniel chapter 8, um, you'll see that the, the two horns of the ram uh, one is higher, it came up last, okay, than the first one. It's the same, uh, the same thought is being taught here. That uh, uh, the bear raised itself up, up on one side. So uh, the Persian division of the kingdom uh, fulfilled that 
in that although it came up last, it, it attained the higher eminence than the Medes. It became the dominant influence, you would say, uh, in, the, in that nation, in, in that kingdom. The three ribs is very interesting. They signify the three provinces of Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt, which were especially oppressed by Medo-Persia. They were the ones that they conquered. So we find this symbolism in how history fulfills it here. It's, it's just profound, isn't it? How accurate God is. Is it a surprise that God's so accurate? He knows the future. <laughs> well, we can begin to trust Him more and more because He's proving that He's all-knowing, right? What did Daniel notice about the third beast? Question number five. This is Daniel 7 and verse 6. After this I beheld and lo another like a leopard which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads and dominion was given it. So what is this, the, the nuts and bolts description of this beast? What kind of animal was it? It was a leopard, but the leopard had four heads, right? But it also had what else? Four wings. The leopard itself is is a a, a, a cat that's very it's very fast, isn't it? It's very swift-footed, you would say. But this was not sufficient to represent the career of the nation of Greece. It has to have wings as well. And not just two wings, like Babylon's description there. It had what? Four. This means that it really was a a fast-moving kingdom that came on the scene quickly, dominated quickly. And that's the way Greece, under Alexander, conquered the Medes and the Persians and the rest of the world. Alexander conquered the world in a matter of years. He was a brilliant military strategist. And uh, many times his armies were outnumbered, especially in the Battle of Arbella in 331 B.C., you read about that, he was outnumbered 20 to 1 by the Persians, yet he won the victory. And uh, in fact, some of his military strategy is still taught at West Point today. So it kind of tells you the brilliance when it came to fighting, and fighting almost every battle, virtually every battle he fought, they were outnumbered significantly. So, if you're not going to have superior forces, you know, number of forces, then you have to have a superior knowledge of how to conquer your enemy. Isn't that right? And that's what he did. In fact, like I said, he was so brilliant, a lot of the techniques are taught at West Point and have been since its founding. It's pretty remarkable. Now it said the beast had four heads, also had four heads. After Alexander's brilliant, and it was brilliant to, uh, military career and, and conquering the world at the age of 32. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? At the age of 32, uh, he died uh, by a fever induced by drunkenness. The empire was divided among his four leading generals. Essentially, in that culture, was that you fought it out. I mean, isn't it? Babylon was conquered by the Medes and Persians. They fought it out. The Greeks conquered the Medes and Persians and conquered the world. They fought it out. So here you have the king dies who's going to rule the kingdom. 
Well, the four generals fought it out and the kingdom became divided under Greece. And uh, his four leading generals, Cassander, had Macedonia and Greece in the west. Lysimachus uh, had Thrace and the parts of Asia on the Hellespont and the Bosphorus in the north. Ptolemy received Egypt, Lydia, Arabia, Palestine, uh, Syria in the south, and Seleucus had Syria and all the rest of Alexander's dominions in the east. And these divisions were denoted by the four heads of the leopard. Okay, So they didn't become a different kingdom. It wasn't like they were Rome and conquered Greece. They were still Greece, but it became divided. That's what the four heads represent. Now what was peculiar about the fourth beast? Do you want to read verses 7 and 8 for us? Jerome? After this I saw in the, in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, and devoured and break in pieces, and stands residue with the feet of it. Mm-hmm. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were like were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Yeah. Well, what was peculiar about this fourth beast was that it was that Daniel there he says it was different. He uses the word diverse, doesn't he? It was diverse from all the other beasts. It means it was different than the others that was before it. There was no parallel in nature or the natural world by which to designate this hideous creature that Daniel's seeing in his dream. There's no comparison he makes to any animal in the animal kingdom, is there? So you can imagine, here he is, he's a prophet, he's being shown in this dream. He has to describe this beast. And the first three beasts he was able to describe you know, from his uh, a source of the animal kingdom, but this one he couldn't. I mean, it was very difficult. I can't say he couldn't. It was very difficult for him. There's nothing in nature that he could compare it to. And there should be no question but that this represents the same power that's portrayed by the iron legs that you find in Daniel chapter 2, you know, uh, verse 40. It's clear from history that the world power, and if we're going along with the parallel that we find in Daniel chapter 2, that this this prophetic empire was Rome. Right? However, something that's very interesting too is, and this marks it as being different, was the transition was gradual so that it's it's really, you go back in history, it's impossible to find a point, a specific event as marking the change from Greece to Rome like the others. These enormous metallic teeth of this beast they actually speak to the cruelty and the strength of Rome as the animal tore to pieces and devoured its prey with those fangs, those metal fangs. So Rome devoured nations and peoples in its conquests. Sometimes whole cities were destroyed as in the case of Corinth in 146 BC. They were completely destroyed as a, as a city. And then kingdoms such as Macedonia and the Seleucid dominions which came from that uh, general, Seleucus, you know, the Greek general that was part of his dominion, they were divided into provinces. They were just kind of amalgamated in. 
And when Rome didn't destroy or subjugate a, a people, it, it would sell them, either make them slaves or sell them into slavery. In fact, a lot of the army soldiers of Rome were slaves. Did you know that? So they would conquer these kingdoms or take them over or, or subjugate them and, and they were pledged to give so many men to the armies of Rome. You're familiar with that movie Gladiator. That was Rome was ruling at that time. They had the the battles in the Colosseum, right? Where they would put the gladiators out there. Those gladiators, a lot of them were slaves. See? That's what they would do. And you fought in their military, and if you rebelled, well then of course they would put you in the arena. Or they just would execute you. And so this is how they conquered the world. That sounds like a terrible beast, doesn't it? You either become like me or I destroy you. Don't we see some of that same spirit alive and well today in our world? Yeah, we sure do. But Rome surpassed the kingdoms that had previously ruled the world. Question 7, what did the ten horns represent? Daniel 7, verse 23 and 24. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are what? Ten kings. Ten kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them. That's interesting, isn't it? And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. So what did the ten horns represent? Ten kingdoms, right? And so as... I was saying earlier, as the Roman Empire became weaker in the 3rd and 4th centuries, there was a period of barbarian invasions that occurred because they noticed that the military, not only was Rome becoming effeminate, their military was, was uh, becoming weaker as well because of that. These, these barbarians, you know, these tribes were tribes of, of peoples who were subjugated by Rome. They weren't, quote, Romans... Okay, they still were uh, uh, tribes, but they gave pledges and honors and stuff to Rome. When they saw weakness in Rome, they rebelled. They divided up into these kingdoms, and uh, and so the replacement of the empire by a number of separate states or monarch monarchies. I mean, that's pretty well established fact of history. Pagan Rome was divided into exactly ten kingdoms between 351 and 476 A.D. The ten nations which were most instrumental in breaking up the Roman Empire, they what? They correspond with the ten toes of that you know, metal image of Daniel 2. These kingdoms here. Dalmany, Franks, Burgundians, Suebi, Anglo-Saxon, Visigoths, Lombards, Hurli, Vandals, and Ostrogoths represent the nations today. Germany, France, West, Portugal, England, Spain, and Italy. So you see how it parallels. We're getting more of a picture here. God gave us the big picture in Daniel 2. We're now here in Daniel 7 and we're getting more facts uh, laid out to us about what these represent, what they mean. So they correspond. These ten horns correspond to the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2. What came in the midst of these ten kingdoms? 
a little horn, exactly. That's what uh, Jerome read to us in Daniel 7 and verse 8. There was a little horn. This little horn arose as a political power, and we need to take note of this. He rose as a political power after the ten had arisen and not before. Isn't that right? He said, from the midst of them, from the midst of those horns came a little horn that came up, right? And that's very important because that gives us the timing of this little horn. So as Ribera and the other Jesuit might tell us, well, this all happened in the past or it's all in the future. No, we have the timing of it. He came up in the midst of Europe here in these ten divisions. But, you know, between, like I said, 351, 476. How did this little horn look? He had what? Eyes and a mouth of a man. And Daniel also says that he was more stout than his fellows. That's Daniel 7 verse 20. He says, And of the ten horns that were in his head and of the other which came up before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellow. What does that mean, stout? Fat. <laughs> it means he was bigger. He got to where he was Stout. he was bigger than the other horns. No. The clause that clause there that clause there reads literally whose appearance was bigger than that of its companions. In the original. That's that's what that means. So though he was it was small to beginning, this little horn grew until it became greater than any of the other horns. And so this power would gain superiority over all other earthly powers. What, what would this diverse power do to make a place for itself? Question number 10. What would this diverse power do to make a place for itself? Daniel 7 verse 24. We go back to that and we read it again. It talks about him being diverse from the first and he shall subdue. How many kings? Three. That's very specific as well, isn't it? So God's filling in some of the pieces of the puzzle here. He's being very specific. And the reason he's being very specific is because the devil comes out with those different theories. Remember we talked about when we talked about the secret rapture where it originated. You know, you have the the preterist view of in biblical and prophetical interpretation and you have the, the futurist view method. They were trying to deflect from this, but God's very specific. He doesn't want us to be deceived, and so He's pinpointing, giving us pinpoint accuracy in defining who this little horn is. And it says that He's going to subdue three kings. The power represented by this unique horn was the, another way He was different was that He was a religious, a religious political power in nature. Okay? The papacy was an ecclesiastical kingdom ruled over by a pontiff. The other kingdoms were political powers ruled by kings. And these three kingdoms from the division of Rome, it's very interesting, you study them out, they are the ones who very seriously, I mean they fought over this, they opposed the spiritual supremacy of the papacy. And those three kingdoms were the Hurrieli, 
And here they are, the Hurrialai. They were destroyed. The Hurrialai. They were destroyed in 493, so you can wipe them out right there. The, the Vandals were destroyed in 534 AD. They're no longer around. Ostrogoths. And uh, the Ostrogoths were uprooted in 538. So 538, we need to pay attention to that date because that's a very significant date. And so this little horn uprooted three and three kingdoms, and we just happen to go back three of these ten and go back and look through history and go, oh wow, three of them were uprooted, were destroyed. What power did that? Very interesting, huh? Well, it was the papal power, we'll find, because it can't be pagan Rome, because pagan Rome had fallen, it had been divided. And now it changed over to papal Rome, and papal Rome used the state, that's what they do, their church state, they use the state to wipe out those three kingdoms that opposed papal rule, the Pope, essentially. Now, after this little horn was established, what words did he speak? Daniel tell us. Daniel 7 and verse 25. You want to read that for us, please? And he shall speak speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given unto his hand until a time to time, a time and times. And the biding of time. time. (laughs) So what what were the kind of words that he spoke? It says that he spoke... Great words. Great words against God, right? So here in Daniel 7.25 is actually it's a threefold accusation that's made against the little horn. First, blasphemous claims. Second, persecution of God's people. And third, a claim to have the right to change God's law in sacred times, right? Three things. Um, well, I have to tell you, ecclesiastical literature Literature is, is just replete with exhibits of the arrogant and blasphemous claims of the papacy. I mean, you can find it anywhere. Um, what is blasphemy, first of all? Well, the Jews claimed justification in crucifying Jesus uh, because they said that he committed blasphemy against God because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. John 10, 33. And so... You being a man claiming to be God, that's blasphemy. Okay? And so the claim of the papal priesthood to be able to forgive sins as well, that's taking the prerogative of God, isn't it? They do that on a daily basis by use of the confessional. Um, The claim of the popes to be the vicars of Christ. Thus they usurp the role of the Holy Spirit. That's blasphemy, isn't it? Of the claims of the popes to actually be God, I think, is the ultimate blasphemy against uh, the Almighty. And, uh, you notice some of the, the things that they said I shared earlier today. Um, this is from Pope Leo Thirteenth in his encyclical. He said, The Pope is of so great dignity and so exalted that he is not a mere man, but as it were God and the vicar of God. He said, the Pope, by reason of the excellence of his supreme dignity, is called Bishop of Bishops. 
He's also called ordinary of ordinaries, and there's more to that. You've got to understand some of the ecclesiastical uh, terms that the, the, the Catholics use to understand what ordinary means. It doesn't, it's not the word we consider as ordinary. Okay? He, he's likewise bishop of the universal church. He's likewise the divine monarch and supreme emperor and king of kings. So it's showing here a description of a kingdom that's church state, isn't it? And he also said, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. That's pretty plain. And that's what he said. And so these are blasphemous claims, aren't they? Which is part of what Daniel 7 and verse 25 said the little horn power would, would have. They would speak great words against the Most High. What would this power do to the saints? Well, Daniel seven twenty five said, it shall wear out the saints of the Most High. In other words, it's going to be a power that persecutes God's people. Well, the papacy acknowledges that it persecuted people. And it defends, what gets me is it defends those acts as a legitimate exercise of power that's been granted to them by Christ. Oh, we can persecute because we represent Christ. Show me where Jesus persecuted anyone. That's that's the key, isn't it? Now, question 13. What time element is mentioned in God's uh, law? A time element that's mentioned in God's law. Is there anything in the Ten Commandment law that has to do with time? Sabbath. The Sabbath. Well, where do you find that? That's the fourth commandment, isn't it? Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, don't you find it interesting Daniel's description there of this little horn power and what it would do, why would it be why would it be something that it would think to change the times and laws of God? I mean, why does it, why does that even come into play? You know what I'm saying? Why would he even think it could Why would he even think it would do? No, what I'm saying is when it's describing when Daniel's describing this little horn power, okay, it's going to persecute the saints. Okay, well, you kind of expect that. Um it can speak great words against God. Okay. But why is part of its characteristic that it shall think to change times and laws? Now, if, if it wasn't, if God's law was not important, which is being taught everywhere. everywhere, and if the Sabbath wasn't important because the law of God is not important, why would that be necessary for Daniel to give us that as a description of the Antichrist power of this little horn? Well, obviously, the, it, it is important. important. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. See, it's got to be important. And so, because it's part of the description given of this little horn power. And so, what is the time element? It's the seventh day Sabbath of the fourth commandment. Now, what change has this little horn power attempted to make in the law of God? As we read there in Daniel 7 25, it's going to think to change times and laws. Well, 
we go back and as we're looking here, we see that there was this entity that, that professed to be Christian, to be a follower of Christ, but it changed the Sabbath from the seventh day, Saturday, to the first day, Sunday. And the apostate church there freely admits it's, it's responsible for the introduction of Sunday worship, claiming that it has the right, just like persecuting people, it has a right to make these changes. Let me share this with you. This is from a, uh, an authoritative catechism for priests. It's the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Um, you can look that up. But they say, but the Church of God, and of course that's the, we're talking about the apostate church here. They said, but the Church of God has in her wisdom ordained that the celebration of the Sabbath day should be transferred to the Lord's day. This is what the priests are taught. Well, catechisms are the teachings of the church. So this is what they're taught. And this catechism was written by order of that council there and published under the the auspices of Pope Pius V. But throughout the the New Testament times, Christians, did they observe the first day or the seventh day of the week as the Sabbath? Throughout the New Testament, the apostolic apostolic church, it, it was the Sabbath. It was the seventh day of the week. And the transition from the Sabbath to Sunday it was a gradual process, just like when Rome conquered uh, Greece. It was a gradual process, see? Um, but it began sometime before 150 AD and continued for three centuries, you know, gradually, gradually. And this is the way the devil works. He's, he's subtle, and he'll work gradually. He'll have a plan. You'll find out as we get further along that that the this antichrist power laid plans out even though it would take that I've got quotes where they say even if it takes us 30 years we're going to reach our goal of conquering you know infiltrating the United States essentially three facts are clear from history concerning this the concept of sunday sacredness among christians originated primarily in their effort to avoid practices that would tend to identify them with Jews and thus lead to persecution because the Jews became a very persecuted people this time. And since Christians worshipped on the same Sabbath, they started to look for another day. See, The second thing was the church at Rome early developed a preference for Sunday. Um, it was the sun god after all, right? And the increasing importance attached to Sunday in the early church at the expense of the Sabbath closely parallels Rome's gradual rise to power. That's very interesting to take note too. Because they started gradually, Christians were still worshiping on God's holy day, which is the seventh day. But as they began to leave and worship on Sunday, papal Rome gained in power almost Exactly the same. The more emphasis given to Sunday, the greater power Rome had. The third thing, Roman influence prevailed to make the observance of Sunday a matter of church law, as it did with many other practices, such as the worship of Mary, uh, the veneration of the saints and angels, uh, the use of images, prayers for the dead. I mean, there's like 300 different things you can go through and find where they've changed uh, these things that, that they're not found in the Bible, um, and so Sunday sacredness rests upon the same basis as these other non-scriptural practices. 
in, introduced into the church by the, the bishop of Rome, the Pope. Um, again, Daniel 7.25 says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. And we look in history and there's only one power that fits that. That comes in the same time, uproots three of the kingdoms, does what Daniel 7.25 tells us. Blasphemous claims, persecute God's people, claim to have the right to change God's times and law. Papal Rome is the only power that's ever done that in the history of mankind. Now, I'm not making this stuff up. You can do your own research and look through history. We want to go by what the Bible and history tells us. Question 15, has the papacy truly made any changes in God's law? No. Has the papacy truly made any changes in God's law? They think, that's what Daniel said in Daniel 7.25, he said, and think to change times and laws, but no, only the lawgiver can change the law. Right? Right, I, I know. They claim to be to changed it, and, and though most of the world follows it, doesn't mean that it was actually changed. Yeah, the law was still written with that was God's kind of finger. A, that was a question to make people really, okay, think about the question now. Truly. And I think this is why Daniel described it in such a way as they think to change. You know, because there would be, essentially he would be backing them if he said, and they changed God's law. <laughs> you know. He'd sound Catholic, wouldn't he? Um, but uh, Daniel, especially Daniel 2, you'll see when he's explaining to Nebuchadnezzar uh, who was it that gave the interpretation of the dream. Who's the one who puts kingdoms and nations in place? It's God. Which commandment did they so, remove when they combined? The tenth. They split in two. And they removed the second. It had to do with the worship of idols. For how long would this power sway the world? We go back to Daniel 7 and verse 25 and it says, until a time and times and the dividing of time. Okay. A time in, some, in symbolic language represents a year. A time can be likened to a day in symbolic language. They both represent a year. And you can look up Numbers 14.34, Ezekiel 4.6, but Daniel 4.16 talks about that too. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar, he became like a beast, you know? Seven times. You go back and you look and it talks about seven years. Okay. So a time, here you got one. Here's a time. Let's put it down. Here's a time. Time, it says, and times, that would be time and time. These are times. And the dividing of time, half a time. So that's a year, and that's a year, and that's a year, and this is six months. I'm terrible at math. So that would be, like you said, you're right. It's three and a half years. I just need to stop talking. 
I did sit 30 at first, didn't I? <laughs> it's equal to three and a half years. But that and that's equal to that's also if you put it in if you put three and a half years and you say, okay, I don't want years, I want months, how many months would that be? A score is 10 years. 12, 12, 12, 6, 14 months. A score is how long? Score. I'm asking about score. I know that, but it's 20. Okay. Um, 12 and 12 is 24, and 12 is 36, and 6 is 42. Well, that's interesting because the beast there we talk about in Revelation 13 it's, it equates it to 42 months. Revelation. Uh, 1214 refers to this period of time when the beast rules as 1260 prophetic days, which is actually literal years in apocalyptic prophecy. Symbolic time prophecies. This is something to understand as well. Symbolic time prophecies are based on 30-day months. Okay? 30 days each month, 12 months in a year. Or 360 days in a year. Don't get confused with, sometimes it's referred to as the Jewish calendar, but it's not exactly the Jewish calendar. Because the Jews also use the lunar, you know, changes and stuff, and that can just confuse you. But prophetic time prophecies are always 30-day months, 12 months a year, which is 360 days in a year. So three and a half years times 360 days equals 1,260 prophetic days or 1,260 literal years. They don't have a leap year. But see, that's you can get confused by it if you, you know. And, and this is why time prophecies. One of the reasons why we know this is true is because when you use this principle, all the prophecies fit. They work. There's no questions about them. When you don't use this principle, you're going to have all kinds of tangents and some of them work, some of them don't. But in God's Word, everything's confluent. Everything just works out. It's nice. And use this principle and it just, everything fits. So, question 17. When did the little horn's power begin and end? Now you've got to know... Um, you got to know something about history. Remember this day here? I said, remember that? Uh-huh. We know that these three, when these three kingdoms were uprooted by Papal Rome, that's when Papal Rome began its reign. It could start because these guys just fell into place. 538 AD is when it began. Well, if you know something else about prophecy... You know this three and a half times comes out to 1,200, we just said, 1,260 days, prophetical days, is equal to 1,260 what? Years. Literal years. You can barely read one right down there. Terrible. So if you take 538 and you add 1,260 years to it, 1798. 1798. So it rained for... Now see, something happened in uh, 1798 to this little horn power. You say, okay, well, how did it end? 
We've got the timing that it ended. The Pope was taken prisoner. (laughs) Yeah, the spectacular victories of the armies of Napoleon in Italy placed the Pope at mercy uh, to the French Revolutionary government. And it's funny, they advised him. They said, you know, the Roman religion would always be an irreconcilable, irreconcilable, I can't even pronounce it right, irreconcilable enemy of the Republic. That's what Napoleon said. He said, you're always going to be our enemy, essentially. That's what they said. And so he gave the command, Berthier with the French army, went into Rome, proclaimed the political rule of papacy at an end. He took the Pope prisoner. They carried him off to France. He died in exile like a year, 18 months later. And so that marked the end of it. Exactly as prophecy told us. Exactly. Well, he... But what gets me is... You see, this corresponds... You know, 1798 corresponds exactly with, you know, you read in Revelation 13 about that first beast power and the deadly wound. That was the deadly wound. But we'll get into Revelation 13 in a later lesson. Um, and against, against uh, uh, France's orders, they still voted in a new pope. They just didn't have the treasury and they didn't have the lands and the power. That's why it says a deadly wound, but then the wound would be healed. They weren't completely annihilated. They were just taken out of power. Question number 18, what great work was to follow 1798? Daniel 7.26 But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. And if you just if you back up, you know, you're reading in Daniel chapter 7, you, you come across like you come to verse 9, and here Daniel he's having this uh, these visions in the night season here, and it says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the ancient of days did sit. Now the ancient of days is God the Father whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. And he goes on, he says, A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him and ten thousand times... you imagine? I mean, they probably didn't have a word for billions or trillions or whatever. So he's just trying to say thousands of thousands ministered and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him and what's he say? The judgment was set and the books were opened. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. So what is the, the answer to question 18? What great work was to follow 1798 when this little horn power ended? The judgment. judgment. Now you see the timeline going here? 538 he comes to power, 1260 years. He rules, he persecutes the saints of God, he speaks great words against God, he thinks to change times and laws. Come 
You know, and today we talked about the signs of Christ's coming. We went back and we saw at this time, after 1798, we start seeing some of these uh, signs happening, which we were told in prophecy would happen. You know, falling stars, or the shooting stars, the earthquakes, we start seeing some of these, these things starting to get worse and worse. Whereas today, it's incredible. You have to truly be blind as a bat not to know something is going on today, just in nature. But there's something that, that happened there after 1798. We got this timeline. Daniel's telling us that the little horn, he said what? The little horn will be slain, etc., etc. Well, the judgment was set. So sometime after 1798, the judgment is to begin. Not before 1798. Sometime after 1798. So, the judgment... He says, the judgment was set and the books were opened. So does that mean it began? Sometime, and we'll get into this more in our next study, our next few studies. But sometime after, yeah, that's after 1798. I know that, but I said it's set. So does that mean it began or it was just set? No, remember, he's in vision. You know what I'm trying to say? He's in vision and he's telling us about this little horn power. And he's bringing us through time of what this little horn power is doing. He was setting a date. And then in 1260, it comes to an end. And then, what does he see after 1798, or after the 1260 years? He sees the judgment. Okay? So he knows... So what I'm saying is, we know that it happens sometime after 1798. Okay. It was set at 1980. We'll get to more detail about that in a coming lesson. But the answer is, the judgment will pass sentence of extinction upon the papacy, essentially. This power will continue its war against the saints to the very last, though. Then its dominion over them will be forever removed. It will be consumed. You notice in verse 11, we are told that because of the great words of which the horn spake, the beast was slain. Because of the great words which the horn spake. I find it just rather interesting that on December 8th, in 1854, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception was decreed by the Pope. And you just start seeing it getting worse and worse. In 1870, the 20th Ecumenical Council decreed the infallibility of the, the Pope when speaking ex cathedra. That is, when as the shepherd and, and teacher of all the Christians, when he defines doctrine for all of us concerning our faith and our morals. When he does that, he's infallible. But despite the increasing honors that are heaped upon the office of the Bishop of Rome by the clergy, the Pope's temporal power was wholly taken away by Berthier in 1798. And that's when they shut themselves up as prisoners in the Vatican, in Rome. Berthier took him, he died in exile in France, but the, but the cardinals, the rest of them were shut up in the Vatican <laughs> until 1929, pretty much. I mean, they did send cardinals and stuff to the United States. We'll find that out a little bit later. I'll share that with you when we get into our studies in Revelation. Uh, but 1929, of course, his dominion was restored by, uh, by Italy. Let's review Daniel 7, and I'll do this real quickly because we're, we're out of time, basically. 
Daniel 7 says that a little horn would arise among the ten horns, which are ten kingdoms. And the Lord gave us, through his Bible, through what we've read here in Daniel 7, nine identifying marks of this little horn power, so that we'll not be deceived as to who it is. The first three marks are actually found in Daniel 7 and verse 8. This little horn power would come up, come up among the ten nations of Western Europe. And ten horns were kingdoms, right? So he's going to come up from among them. He's going to uproot, this little horn will uproot three of those ten nations. Those were the Hurrieli, the Vandals, and Ostrogoths. This little horn power would have a man at the head. Said having eyes and a mouth like a man, right? The next two identifying marks are found in verse 24. This little horn power rises after the other ten horns, so it had to be after 476 A.D., and it would be different from the others who had secular rulers in charge. This was a religious and state combination entity. right? And the last four identifying marks that we find in verse are found in verse uh, 25 of Daniel 7. He blasphemes God. He is a persecuting power, persecutes the saints of God. He thinks to change the times and laws of God. His power shall be for time, times, dividing the time, or 1260 years. Now we know that God authored the Bible, didn't we? And he's laid this out for us. And as we look back, we can see that what the... He wrote was accurate. It was right on time. And there's only one power in all of history that fits these nine identifying marks. There's only one power, universal earthly power, that does it. There's no question this power is religious in nature as well as political. There's never been any other power on earth that meet these nine identifying marks. If it was, it would be too confusing and God's not the author of confusion. There hasn't even been one power, think of it this way, there hasn't even been one power that has even met a few of these. You can't find them in history. The odds of any other power meeting three, let's say, three of these nine that I shared, would be astronomical. But there's never been any other power on earth that meet these nine identifying marks. And so the only power that fits the bill is the papacy of Rome. So the little horn power of Daniel 7 could be none other than papal Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. Let me ask you questions real quick here. Did papal Rome come up among the ten nations of Western Europe? Yes, it did. Did it uproot or subdue three of the ten nations? Yes. Yes. The Heruli were defeated in 493, um, the Vandals in 534, and uh, the Ostrogoths in 538. That's why I said remember that date, 538. Um, is there a man at the head of Papal Rome? Yes. Of course. He's the Pope. Did he come into power after 476 A.D.? Is 538 after 476 A.D.? Yes. Yes. Is he different from the other beast powers? Yes. The other ten nations, the other beast powers and the other ten nations, they were political powers. He's more stout. 
<laughs> well, that's right. He became more stout. He's a religious political power. Does he blaspheme God? Yes. Well, a man claiming to forgive sins is a blasphemer. Does the papacy claim to be God on earth? Does he claim to have the power to forgive sins? Yes and yes. Has the papacy ever been known to be a persecuting power? Yes. Oh, yeah. In those 1260 years, the estimates range from 50 to 100 million people were martyred for their faith. And they were martyred by papal armies operating under papal decrees. That's why the church says, we never persecuted anybody. Well, you made decrees that the, the, the governments went in and killed and did all your dirty work for you. He shall think to change time. Yeah, it does sound kind of like that, doesn't it? He shall think to change times and laws. The papacy changed times and the law? Yes. The Sabbath, yeah, he thinks to did the papacy reign for a time, times, and half time before receiving a deadly wound? Yes. So. There was no nose. <laughs> Question 19. Who will have a part in the kingdom of God? The saints. That's right. The saints of the Most High. Those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So, friends, we've been given an advance warning as to what's coming upon the world. In studying chapter 2 and chapter 7 of the book of Daniel and looking at the events of history, we now have a clearer picture of who this little horn power is, and it's none other than papal Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. And, friends, I'll remind you, these aren't my words. I didn't make this stuff up. Um... These are the very words that we find in Scripture. We've read it. We read Daniel 7. We looked at history. We saw what fit. And this is the only thing that fits. Jesus loves people so much that He gave His life for them. Do you believe that? The truths we've discovered in this study of prophecy reveal that there would be a false system of worship that's going to be established. God's Word is revealing this false system to us. Because there are many good people that are being deceived. There are many good people that are in this false system. And God wants them to be awakened so that they will what? To come out of that false system. And that's what God is doing. He's calling people out of this false system of worship and to obey the truth. And those people that He calls out, it's very interesting... He calls them my people. Come out of her, my people. So it's a papal system. It's not the people necessarily, okay, to which God's opposed. For it's a mixture of truth and error, a mixture of church and state. God loves, I want to emphasize this, God loves every person in, in, in every false system. And uh, he's calling them to come out. And join his sheepfold. That's what he talks about in John 10. And so I'd say, let's, let's heed the call of Jesus. Let's join his sheepfold. What do you think? I think so. Let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so very, very much for this opportunity to study the prophecy that we find in Daniel chapter 7. We thank you for the history books that we can look back to and, and see this. And, we, and uh, for the principles that you have in your word that we can follow that we may not be deceived as to what is being shown to us. Uh, Father, I pray that your power will go with 
the words of this study as we publish it online and that people hear it for maybe the first time that you will awaken their minds and their hearts to the truth that's found in your holy word and that they may be prepared for what's coming on the earth may they be accepted accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and be accepted into the kingdom when Jesus returns we pray this humbly Lord in the name of Jesus our Lord and Savior Amen